This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, this is Santiago Brand, and you're listening to the Neuro Noodle Network podcast. Welcome to Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Janssen, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast and are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we have on the show Santiago Brand, Clinical Director, Mind Lab, Applied Neuroscience, located in Singapore. Oh, but by the time the show is over, it's no longer evening. It's going to be morning, Santiago. Hang in there. Before we get to Santiago, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporter, Ars Coso. Dr. Laura, you know Ars Coso? I do. In fact, I have happen to have it. Ars Coso, uh, it's a pre-postbiotic. Yeah, I've been uh, using that pretty regularly, and things are very regular. Okay, good. Sucks. Well, you know why? Because it's the only 100% natural supplement on the market that provides balanced nutrition, combining probiotics and prebiotics, an enzyme which has proven to improve gut health. Dr. Skip likes gut health. He does. Okay, Santiago, thank you for coming back on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me again. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, we have quite a few new listeners since the last time uh, you came on, and we didn't have Jay Gunkelman with us. Can you give us your background again, uh, the 411, so we can clue everybody in? Yes. Uh, so I'm a uh, glorified technician, as I like to call myself. I've been doing neurofeedback for 14 years now. Uh, I have a couple of graduate degrees uh, not master's degrees, but graduate degrees in sports psychology and clinical psychology. And I have had the good fortune to be learning QEG and EEG interpretation from Jay for the past, um, I don't know, seven, eight years now. And I've known Jay for, I think, uh, 10 years now. Jay, how did you uh, meet Santiago? I believe it was at one of the meetings. I can't remember which one. For me, the past is all one category and it, it all blends together. So I don't remember the specifics of it. Uh, he's an earnest student and he's, uh, he's tried extremely hard to learn the art of the science of EEG. It's very difficult and it takes a long, long period of time of pattern recognition. And he's put in the effort to actually learn that and it's not easy. Congratulations on your stick to itiveness. You, you didn't give up uh, after all those years. So apparently, in neurofeedback, there's only try and no do, right? <laughs> well, we're trying. We're trying. It's, it's <laughs> not quite as easy as the see one, do one, teach one. Uh, that's practice, practiced commonly in medicine. It, it, it takes a, a long time to end up having the 
the patterns kind of burned into your memory. I used, I used to ask some of the people who were coming into the lab and, and trying to learn EEG after a couple of weeks, have you had your EEG dream yet? That They would always be shocked. I mean, oh, oh my God, you're in my dreams too, you know? If you're actually paying attention to the EEG and you, you've learned a waveform, that waveform has to be transferred from short-term recall to long-term potentiation in your sleep. Your slow wave sleep helps grow the connection and then REM plays back experience. And those waveforms will be in your dreams if you're really learning them. You know, uh, obviously, uh, sometimes it may be a nightmare. <laughs> you, you, you do have to uh, long-term potentiate all those patterns. And I'm sure Santiago's seen the waves dance in front of him in many nights. So it was a pretty good predictor. Uh, as to whether the person was going to end up really uh, learning EEG or not, uh, if, if they actually were were seeing them in their dreams. Now, Santiago, you're in you're in Singapore, right? That's right. So that's like you're 13 hours ahead. Uh, you're ready. <laughs> you're going to take the pillow out pretty soon. Yeah. Curious. How was neurofeedback received on the other side of the world? When you, when you get done answering that, if you could touch on your thoughts on all the, the mental health issues that have come to light with the Olympics, Naomi, Simone, what's the take on the other side of the world? I, I have been fortunate enough to be in Asia before. I, I, I was um, hired by the Taiwan Association of Neurofeedback and Biofeedback to come to Taiwan twice uh, before COVID to, to do a couple of lectures, uh, three-day lectures on EEG interpretation. So uh, my name uh, was already somewhat known in Asia and coming to Singapore was made the transition a lot easier. Now, neurofeedback is relatively new to Singapore. Not a lot of people are doing it here. Um, and it's surprising because it's, it's a really small place, you know, from east to west is uh, 60 kilometers, north to south is like 70 kilometers. That's how big the country is. So it's, a, it's a very small place. And there's a lot of really uh, well-trained professionals here. So surprisingly, not a lot of people are doing uh, neurofeedback and not a lot of people, to my knowledge, anybody's doing QEG, at least the way I, I do it and I've, I've learned from, from Jay. So that, I, I've been lucky in that regard and it, it's, it's gaining track, it's gaining momentum. You know, people are really attracted to the idea of training the brain for peak performance. One of the the elements that moves the economy here is, is corporate and banking. And a lot of these folks are looking for that extra edge to their performance. They, they want to know how they can make themselves better and more competitive. Neurofeedback has provided them with that opportunity. I think it helps that, you know, recently Tony, Tony Robbins spoke about neurofeedback and how it helped him gain that extra edge in his work. So having the endorsement from such a uh, celebrity, if you will, really helps out because a lot of these corporate clients here have heard about that and are really curious. They really want to try different non-invasive evidence-based um, ways of training the brain. So for, for my lab, uh, applied neuroscience is, is being really good. Business um, is, is going very well. I've only been in the country for six months, but I'm already seeing quite a few clients and they're seeing the results. Therefore, word of mouth is just, it's just growing, which is probably the best way of, uh, of doing and getting business any, any, anyway and anywhere. 
to your question regarding uh, athletes and depression, well, I was I was happily and pleasantly surprised to hear both uh, Simone and, and Naomi talk uh, openly about their struggles with depression. I I have been working with athletes for uh, since two thousand and two, so it's almost twenty years of doing this. And I remember vividly when I started doing my graduate studies in sports psychology, that very first week I was doing my, my internship, a figure skater tried, tried to commit suicide. So it was, I was very new. Uh, it, was, it was the first sport that I was working with. And I just um, got the report that he had tried to commit suicide. So I knew there and then that to me and for my career, it was not going to be enough to just do sports psychology. And that's when I decided to go and study uh, clinical psychology. Now it was through sports psychology that I came across neurofeedback. And uh, when I came across neurofeedback, I knew that's what I wanted to do with, with my career. But I knew that uh, I learned that athletes uh, present cl have clinical presentations as well. And they're probably more prevalent than we think. And they're probably more important sometimes that the performance aspect of their of their job. I've seen firsthand athletes have sleep issues and depression and anxiety. And to me, it's not it's not surprising. To me, it's no surprise that athletes uh, of that caliber would would present with depression. I think it, 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 I don't know what you guys think about it, but in my opinion, it has a lot to do with with energy uh, usage. You know, the, the brain uses a lot of energy, particularly after a victory and a victory that has been in the making for so long. I have worked with peak performance clients, musicians and television personalities and athletes, and they all tell me the same thing. After I have won the award, after I have completed this project, I go into this bout of depression. And I do think it has a lot to do with the energy consumption that it takes Part of it is that, and part of it is, okay, I've already accomplished what I wanted, now what? So there's a sense of emptiness, uh, a sensation of what do I do now uh, that leaves the athlete wondering. You know, as Jay was mentioning in, in, other, uh, in, in a previous podcast when you were, where you were talking about it, your brain activity is also very important. And, you know, I've seen it in, 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 in EEGs many times. I've seen the, the pattern, the alpha asymmetry and the excessive beta and the insula involvement. Athletes are no different than, than any other human being. They just have a specific or special talent. They, they have the skill that, that they can perform, uh, but I think there's human as you and I. And when I approach my work with any type of peak performance client, I always look at the human being first. Yes, I know they want to win. Yes, I know they hire me because they want to get better because they want results. That's how they get measured. That's how they get better at their job. But to me, looking at the human being, looking at the, at the clinical presentation, if you will, it's, it's really, really important. Was it Simone that had the problem in Japan where she couldn't get, was it Adderall? If you don't have your method of regulation, if it's a pill and it's taken away, how long would it take? you know, Simone to do neurofeedback, so she wouldn't need to take that pill. Could she have done that before she went to Japan? Do a lot of sports psychologists uh, use neurofeedback? This idea of the energy consumption is pretty, it, it's interesting. We're talking about humans. I understand that. And you, you know, see your, your clients as people first and then athletes 
what what's your approach so you have somebody like hey they're explaining to you what's going on and and uh you know i, I prepared for this and spent a lot of time and now that I've achieved it, there's a letdown, which I think people can understand, right? What, what do you do on your end? I, I'm thinking clinically, and then of course, with neurofeedback, can, can you maybe talk about what's going on neurochemically with this energy consumption? To your question about energy consumption, I'm not, I'm not completely sure what is happening neurochemically, but I think to some degree, the, the mitochondria gets depleted and that has a very strong uh, emotional and psychological influence. Um, what exactly goes on, I, I really don't know. And that's something I really need to uh, probably read more and learn more about. But I, I do know that it, it's shown in, uh, just by looking at the athlete's behavior. As with most, most humans, I always uh, ask for uh, trauma history. That's the very first thing that I do. Uh, because I think trauma is, is, is probably at, at, at the core of a lot of these people's uh, cl- clinical presentation. And in athletes, the most common, the most common form of trauma comes as, as injuries. So previous injuries, watching a teammate get injured or having, uh, having had an abusive uh, coach, you know, psychological abuse or even sexual abuse, it's, 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 it's there. it ranks high. Uh, if you ask any athlete what their biggest fear is, is that of injury, particularly a career-ending injury. And I always ask about trauma because I know most people have trauma history uh, in one form or another, whether they were the, the direct recipient of their trauma or whether they witnessed somebody being traumatized. Now, it, it never applies to everybody, of course, but it, you know, I would say it's about 90 to 95%, if not close to 99% of the time where people have trauma history and you can have an original trauma and then you have subsequent traumas and it's sort of pancakes on top of each other and then they come presenting with what they're presenting at that particular time so i like to target the trauma first i might do it with power variability i might do it with neurofeedback or a technique that i use called brain spotting or a combination of all three in my line of work i always like to integrate interventions at the appropriate time, you know, how variability primes the brain for that flexibility and that resilience. And once you have created that flexibility and that resilience, then you can start doing some neurofeedback, which then enhances that plasticity even further. And brain spotting, I find to be a very interesting technique because I find that it really goes to the core of the problem and it helps channel the sequelae uh, of those traumatic experiences, particularly in a physical way. You know, brain spotting is a technique that is not, does not involve a lot of talking. It involves the felt sense. So you go and target the subcortical brain and you get the energy, if you will, moving. And by energy, I mean just the physical reactions that somebody might have from experiencing and processing trauma and then efficiently removing that. I find that when I combine those experiences, it's, it's flanking the problem from different angles. You're, you're targeting the problem from different angles. And I think that you know, neurofeedback is wonderful, but uh, uh, it's not a standalone treatment. Biofeedback is it's wonderful, but it's not a standalone treatment. Just like psychotherapy can help, medication can help, but they do not help by themselves. So in my line of work, I like to think of the athlete and the client in a very holistic way. Look at gut-brain access issues. Look at neuroinflammation. Look at trauma history. 
targeting those areas from the right with the right approach and the right professional is what I think gets uh, gets better results. Uh, I'm up here in Alaska, and so when something you know air quotes new kind of comes on the scene, it's not hard to hear about it, right? With within the professional world, so brain spotting's got a, a little bit of a foothold up here, and there's conferences, you know, periodically. Can you can you talk more uh, maybe about the differences between brain spotting and EMDR? I know they're not the same thing, but I think people might be familiar with EMDR as a, a trauma intervention. Right. Well, I don't I don't really know much about EMDR, but what I do know is that David Grant, who is the developer of brain spotting, was an EMDR practitioner, and brain spotting was born out of EMDR, and it was actually born uh, out of working with an athlete. It was discovered through the, the work with an athlete. And what David Grant was doing was work, he was working with a female uh, figure skater. And uh, he was doing his EMDR setups. And the way he tells the story is that he was moving his finger this way. And he noticed that the athlete the girl who was 16 at the time started wobbling the ice really fast. And he says, I felt like somebody put a hand and grabbed my wrist, just held my hand in place. And as the eyes were wobbling, all this previous traumas started emerging. Now, he was working with her using EMDR because she was having trouble pulling off a triple loop. So it's, it's a jump where you have to turn around three times and land it. It's the hardest jump that you can do in figure skating. And she was having trouble doing it. And one of the main traumas that came out is, um, is when she, um, her mom was driving her to practice. Her parents had recently gotten divorced and her mom says, you know, your dad and I got divorced because of your figure skating. So that came out and through the eyes wobbling, there was this processing. And then they had the session. She went home. Two days later, she calls him and says, I'm pulling off the triple loop like I'd done it a million times before. And that was the birth of brain spotting. Now, David then uh, asked many of his clients who were therapists themselves to try the exercise and see if they would notice anything similar. And they would start coming back, reporting all these wonderful changes and these wonderful physical reactions and, and reflexes. And clients were reporting a faster healing of their trauma response. And so he started developing all the setups and that's how brain spotting came to be. There, there's a couple of things I gotta say. Uh, you know, brain spotting is relatively new. It was discovered back in 2003. So it's, it's a young, uh, technique is not uh, really strong in its research base. So there's some of us who are actually now doing research with EEG and psychophysiological variables and with brain spotting to, uh, you know, support the why it works, support why it is so efficient and get some data behind it, some robust scientific data behind it. There's, there's a few of us around the world doing this. I got to say, though, I have been brain spotted myself and I have experienced personally the benefits of this intervention. It's a very powerful intervention. David Grant did uh, an interview with ESPN. If you Google ESPN Fields of Fear, he does brain spotted with Mackie Sasser, the former catcher for the New York Nets. Mackie Sasser had a, a shoulder injury, which ended up being ending his career. It was career ending. He had a problem throwing the ball back to the pitcher. So he would yep. have to go two or three times to return the ball. And he eventually ended his career. And during the documentary, 
David Grant does some explain what brain spotting is and starts doing brain spotting with Mackie Sasser. So, and during the brain spotting sessions, all this trauma starts emerging to the point where Mackie Sasser, now retired, can throw the ball back efficiently without thinking about it. So we know there's something to it. I have experienced the, the, the efficacy myself. I have experienced the power of brain spotting myself. Now, one of my goals is to scientifically back it up. Because one of the disadvantages that brain spotting has with respect to EMDR is that EMDR has good EEG data and MRI data behind it. So we need to be more industrious in, in, in the research and uh, supporting the data. Because as, as Jay told me, once you have this extraordinary claim, well, you have to provide extraordinary evidence for it. And that's what we're working to do. And I think Jay has uh, some, some has somewhat witnessed the, the work that I'm trying to do with brain spotting and and EEG. Yeah, we were taught pretty early on by our mentor that, you know, 95% of what's going on here is unconscious. And what's interesting slash encouraging about the folks we get on the show is we're talking about interventions that address this unconscious functioning as a psychologist, right? The, the onus of the training is on talk therapy, right? For the most part. And man, it's just so much more to it than that. It would be nice if you could talk with folks and everything was all better. Well, I, and I, would, I want to follow up on that because I, I absolutely agree. Uh, I, you know, I think that the advantage that neurofeedback, uh, biofeedback, and even brain spotting have with respect to psychotherapy is that they're brain-based based interventions. I think that a lot of, a lot of the time, the issues somebody is presenting come from the subcortical brain. And, you know, you cannot just target the cortical brain and, you know, the speech areas and other areas of the brain cortically. You have to go deep into the brain and integrate from a top-down, bottom-up approach. And I think neurofeedback, biofeedback, and other forms of intervention like EMDR or brain spotting provide us, uh, provide us with that advantage. Brain spotting is that condition that the catcher had, can that be considered uh, the yips is what is that what is what you would call the yips? Yeah, the equivalent to, to the yips. Yeah, and and yips being a common phenomenon in, in golfers mostly. You know, it's it's a, it's a golf pathology, if you will. The question earlier uh, with respect to stimulant use with an athlete who has ADD is not an uncommon circumstance in sports. Now they don't want you to have a performance enhancing drug, but if you have a prescription for something that has to be treated, you're allowed. Not everywhere, obviously. There are countries that don't allow the drugs uh, you know, to be used within the country. And that uh, obviously ends up changing the level of performance for the athlete. If you're dependent upon Ritalin or methylphenidate for your dopamine, it's a dopamine reuptake inhibitor, uh, you, you're going to end up not performing well if you're not taking the medication you're dependent upon. Pete alluded to the fact that neurofeedback could replace the need for the drug. And in fact, uh, the methylphenidate and neurofeedback have been shown to be equivalent for uh, control over ADD, ADHD in a number of studies. The benefit over the neurofeedback of neurofeedback over the medication is that you're not dependent upon anything other than yourself once you learn the skill of the neurofeedback and medication, you're dependent upon medication. You know, you can't always get your medication. So learning how to essentially self-regulate as opposed to medicate 
ends up being, I think, a superior approach, uh, it takes time. That's the only thing. Uh, if you've got three, four months, you can take a couple of sessions, two, three sessions a week. And at the end of three, four months, you've got a, a new skill. Yeah, if you're an athlete, actually, I found athletes do a pretty good job learning brain control. They seem to have uh, good motivation and uh, quick learning skills. So, you know, it might be a little bit shorter, but it takes time. And the medication is right now. Uh, neurofeedback is, you know, a few months from now. There, there's a, a tendency to be the quick fix is the one that can get me you know, ready to do my whatever it is right now, as opposed to having to work on something and have that skill later. I, I still think the gaining of the skill is a superior approach. And again, it, you don't have to worry about whether a country will allow your particular medication in or not. To what Jay is saying regarding the medication, I, I, I have noticed that peak performers, um, particularly athletes, tend to be quite superstitious. Some of them tend to be quite superstitious. And so they, they will engage in these uh, rituals that they link to their performance. And if they don't perform these rituals, they, they think they're not going to do well. And sometimes medication becomes a part of those rituals. And in some cases, it can be hard to convince an athlete that neurofeedback is a good alternative to medication. Because again, the medication becomes part of their superstitiousness. If they don't take that pill, I'm not, I did not win because I did not take my medication. I did not win because I did not take my pill. I did not win because I did not take my magic, magic water. Therefore, you know, working the flexibility for them to accept these alternatives is quite important as well. And it, it's part of the job we're working with athletes and peak performers. But speaking of superstitions, uh, if anybody watches Ted Lasso, even mentioning the word yips is is unacceptable in, in some sports worlds, right? So you're not even supposed to be talking about this thing that's going on. Baseball's got, you know, it is steeped in this history of things you can and can't do. Somebody's throwing a no hitter, you got to stop sitting by them. Or you don't have the, by the seventh inning, you know, he's on an island at the end of the bench, right? All kinds of peculiar uh, activities, right? Within the game itself. And Ted Lasso is a great show, by the way, just to put that out there. If anybody wants to check it out. They aren't a yeah. Patreon sponsor. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Apple TV, bring it. So I remember Alan Alda had a show on television on TVS a few years ago, and there was a lady, you know, one of the, one of the first things that made me fall in love with neurofeedback was this program, because the, he was interviewing a lady out of, uh, I forgot her name, it was, she was out of Arizona State University, and she was actually uh, studying the EEG of the yips, so she had golfers in her lab doing pots, potting on a potting green um, as she was reading the EEG. And that was one of the uh, what that was one of my first contacts with with the world of neurofeedback. And I say, oh, that's really cool. I would really love to do that. So, I, I flew to Arizona to to meet with her. Unfortunately, for some scheduling conflicts, it couldn't happen. But it got me interested uh, so much so that my uh, thesis, uh, my research uh, thesis with uh, and, and my graduate program for sports psychology was on HRV and shooting. So I started, that's, that's how I got started. There's, a, there's a more and more of an interest because one of the questions was, are, are there a lot of sports psychologists in your, using neurofeedback? And I think more and more sports psychologists are interested in using neurofeedback. 
are they all using the right kind of neurofeedback or studying the proper way of doing neurofeedback? I don't think so. A lot of them end up buying all these Mickey Mouse wearables and they come to me. I have had a few colleagues come to me saying, oh, I'm so excited because I'm using neurofeedback. And it's one of those you know, cheap wearables that have no evidence behind it. Or some of them are saying, oh, I do brain mapping. They're not doing you know, proper QEG 19 channels. They're doing two or three channels with, again, some software, which is relatively new. So it's, we also need to be careful about that because I don't know if AJ would agree with me, but there's a flourishing of all this equipment being sold as neurofeedback that in many ways is harming the field, potentially a reputation as practitioners. Yeah, the small devices uh, that can be used at home with proper supervision are also sometimes used at home without supervision. It takes uh, an experienced practitioner to know the subtleties of how to adjust for EEG neurofeedback. You know, uh, being on your own is a, a good way to kind of step off a cliff. Uh, so I'm happy to see new devices available to the clinical world for home training. Because quite honestly, there are a lot of disorders that are going to require so much training that having them come into the office every time is not really feasible. In our work with intractable epilepsy, we expect over 100 sessions quite often. And just the logistics of getting back and forth to the office reliably and end up being a nightmare for a family. So having something that's a quality instrument at home uh, is is a gigantic leg up. The, the uh, unfortunately, the same device can end up being used with no supervision, and uh, that that again uh, can be problematic. If you train the wrong way with an epileptic, you can make things worse. Years ago, um, uh, uh, Joel Lubar did a study with what's called an ABA design. Uh, they trained somebody to make more SMR and less slow activity and their seizure rate went down, the contingencies were reversed blind to the patient, and the seizure rates got worse, and then they reversed back to the appropriate training, and they got better again. Now, that's not allowed in human research anymore. I mean, the IRBs uh, don't let you do ABA design with some deliberate reversal of something that's a positive impact. You can't make somebody worse deliberately as part of your study. Historically, that wasn't the case and it was still permitted. Uh, and the, the end result was was good, you know, good outcome. But again, in the midst of it, making things worse, um, you know, did occur. It's a powerful demonstration uh, that the neurofeedback was, you know, the, uh, actually effective. But um, at the same time, uh, you're training somebody to get worse in the midst of the training. And again, that's not permitted now appropriately. Now, I, when I started, there was no such thing as an IRB. And uh, there was no efficacy for anything in neurofeedback. Everything we did was research and experimentation. Luckily, uh, yeah, outcomes were positive and uh, the literature slowly built itself up. At this point, there's actually solid research behind neurofeedback. When I started, there was none. Uh, there, there was you know, Camilla and Sturman's work, and that was it, basically. It, it, it's good to see the field having uh, grown and matured uh, to the point where uh, we actually have good advocacy, solid meta-analyses underneath everything now. We have a golfer listening to us. Could you walk us through what is going on when you're at the putting green and you got a three-foot putt 
and you just yip it. What is going on in the brain? If you if you do the QEEG, what do you see? What are the what are the treatments? How do I address it with a therapist? Everything all together for the golfers out there. Help us become a scratch golfer. I would let Santiago answer, uh, but. Uh, I have trouble stopping myself. Very nice research was done in Europe on golfing, putting, basically. A couple seconds before the putt, based on looking at the EG alone, they could predict whether the person was going to be effective in putting it. You know, what were they looking at? If you think about your putting and your frontal lobe gets involved with that, you're you're actually getting in the way of a fixed action pattern that you've learned. If you really know what you're doing uh, and you know how to putt well, if, if you think about what you're doing, you're going to step on it in a, in a bad way. It, it gets your frontal lobe uh, is responsible for the, the motor regulation of the putt, uh, but it's also uh, entangled with um, emotion and attention and distraction. And if, if it's not right frontally, the overlearned action of the putt will be blown. And if you simply teach the person to get out of the way and actually do what they've learned to do, they, they do better than if they're trying hard to relax, for instance. You know, I'm there's that doesn't even make logical sense, trying hard to relax. Well, um, if you're trying hard to putt, uh, you're probably going to blow the putt. Uh, being able to predict effectively ahead of time. Now, the good thing about that is that golfers don't mind spending a thousand dollars to improve their game by two, you know, two strokes. You know, uh, there, there's a market out there for neurofeedback people for uh, helping golfers uh, improve their game. And there's a lot of golfers. There's a lot of duffers, but there's a lot of golfers. So, yeah, it's a, it, it's a huge market. I don't follow a lot of sports, so I'm not, I don't have much to add to the conversations with the sports. But uh, I am a musician myself, and I was practicing this. I practice every morning. I was doing some scale. And there's this Ingwe, I don't even know how to say his name either, but uh, Ingwe Malmstein. He's a shredder. Uh, I was practicing one of his... Uh, scales. What Jay's talking about reminds me of like the frontal striatal loops, like the front part of your brain is looped in with your reward centers. And that's how you learn. And there's a conscious component to it. And like Skip was talking about earlier, and I think we were all talking about this earlier, that the implicit learning, so much of what's going on when we're trying to learn is, is subcortical. And there's a, actually a cortical cerebellar loop. So the Cortex loops into your cerebellum. Cerebellum is a structure in the back of your brain known as the, the supervisor of what you're doing. It predicts what you're doing. And, um, and this is a quote from somebody else, because again, I'm not that much in the sports, but the batter starts swinging before the pitcher's ball leaves his hand, right? So there's some anticipation happening that's subconscious that, you know, you've, you've swung the bat so many times, the cerebellum is a part of your brain that as you predict where it's going before you even know the ball's coming at you. So anyway, back to my practice this morning. So I'm practicing these, these pretty quick scales on the guitar. Every time I would make the mistake, there was a you know difficult part in the passage and there's a, I keep making the same stupid mistake and I'm mad at myself. And so all of that plays in, I'm sure, to what you're talking about with the yips. You're mad and, ah, oh, damn it, why can't I do this right? There's certainly a conscious component to that. But what was unconscious about it 
and this has been pointed out to me many times by my uh, music mentors, is that what your brain is doing, it's anticipating like the third and fourth, the fourth step before you're even at the second step. So you're anticipating what's going to, because it's going by so quickly, my hand has to go very quickly. And so the brain is thinking about two steps ahead before I'm here. So I wonder with the golf in the, maybe what you guys are talking about with the yips is this predictive part of the brain, again, the part of the brain that has the bat swinging before the ball leaves a pitcher's hand that you're anticipating where it's going. That's certainly what happens when I'm playing guitars. I have to anticipate these different, you know, because I keep hitting the same roadblock every time, but I'm always three, and the mistake I make, I can look at the mistake and go, oh, that's because I was three steps ahead and not where I needed to be. You know, back to what we're talking about with neurofeedback, but I wonder, you know, Jay had mentioned before, skepticism or, or some research or experience saying that the cerebellum can't be trained with neurofeedback, but it seems like that's one of the structures in addition to the frontal lobe, you know, things we want to work on that, uh, you know, I wonder what uh, Santiago and, and Jay would have to say about that with the cerebellum involvement. In fact, the cerebellum doesn't make externally visible EEG. It's a monopole, mm -hmm. but all you have to do is tap into the network that the cerebellum is interacting with to end up interacting with the cerebellum. The cerebellum is in, uh, very tightly in, intertwined with the basal ganglia, which are involved with a lot of things other than just movement. Uh, uh, historically, cerebellum was just you know, smoothing movements and keeping from overshooting what you're reaching for and things like that. But the cerebellum is also involved in other frontal functions, emotion and attention. It's been undervalued, I believe, across time. Uh, it's only recently been seen as the, the, the rich source of attentional and, uh, and, and affective regulation as well. But again, if you can't see its activity directly from a surface electrode, it's harder to see what it's involved in. So it's not a surprise that it's taken a long time for uh, its richness to be seen because it, it, you know, it's invisible, basically. So you, you can see its effect. And over time, you, you it, it imply uh, uh, what's actually going on in it. Um, the basal ganglia and frontal lobe are part of the attentional regulation network. And as such, uh, ADD, ADHD, the regulation of the frontal lobe, frontostriatal thalamocortical loop ends up being really quite critical. And neurofeedback ends up helping to train that. If you have frontocentral theta in your EEG, the basal ganglia have a a dopamine deficit and methylphenidate is a dopamine reuptake inhibitor. Uh, but you can also learn how to regulate that yourself as opposed to being dependent upon the methylphenidate for your dopamine. I think that the cerebellum ends up being a, a critical piece. We don't have to work with it directly. We can work with its network and not worry about trying to measure it directly. Because again, unless you've got an, uh, an electrode in the cerebellum, um, the best you can do is extrapolate what it's doing from its impact on the surrounding areas. So where would you put the leads there, Jay? So if we're, we're doing this corticocerebellar loop and this predictive errors, how, how would you go about helping that? It depends upon whether you want to tap into the network at its input or output. You what can you tap think? into it frontally uh, for the input to the network, the frontal striatal thalamocortical loop ends up having the cerebellum tapped in in the striatal level, or you can 
uh, have the output level uh, centrally, the motor strip, somatosensory uh, strip. That same loop ends up having a beginning frontally and an ending centrally. So uh, you, you can tap into that loop. Um, what about the cortical cere cerebellar? Uh, basically, frontal uh, work ends up tapping into cerebellar function really quite well. And again, the cerebellum's impact on motor function, you can end up tapping into that at the output within the motor strip. You know, a lot of people end up uh, overemphasizing a spot when in fact uh, the brain works in networks. You don't have to tap into the specific spot. You simply have to tap into the network that's involved. Again, for motor regulation, uh, frontal lobe initiates and the motor strip executes. So you can tap in at the initiation or the execution end of that loop. It's hard to tap into the striatum unless you got an electrode down in there, but you can tap into that loop. It's lucky that we don't have to tap into everything directly because a thalamocortical column is only two to four millimeters in size at the tip of the column. We'd have thousands of electrodes if we had to be very specific, but the cortex smears, uh, 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 cortex signal is smeared by the meninges in the skull and the skin, uh, the hyperfocal thalamocortical column ends up with a six centimeters spread on the cortex, on the surface. So, so, so would um, you put it at the input or the output? It depends upon the, the circumstance. They're missing and the hut. You're, you're not necessarily limited to only one option also. Okay. You can tap into both the frontal and central. Right. Uh, it requires good look at the person's actual data. Uh, to design the specific electrode combination and what frequencies you're going to be changing. There are people that work with what's called a standardized protocol. You have XYZ disorder, and for that disorder, we get this protocol. The, the difficulty with that is, is that there's not one pattern for a presentation. There's many. So Even start for, somewhere and work your way up. Working yeah, it, for, for instance, in obsessive compulsive disorder, pretty well guarantee it's going to be an anterior cingulate phenomenon. The, the symptom predicts where the problem is. However, it doesn't tell you what the failure mode of the brain is there. Could be alpha, could be theta, could be beta. Same exact symptom presentation. You have OCD. The difference is you know, dramatic in, in how you, you know, end up uh, attacking or fixing that. Uh, the, the alpha pattern responds really well to SSRIs. The theta pattern's a failure to respond, but it's not a bad response. The beta pattern's a failure to respond, and it's a really bad failure. Um, the person has a, a negative response to the medication. The EG actually predicts before you medicate whether it's going to be successful, a waste of time, or a tragic outcome. It's, it's nice to actually not just assume oh, OCD gets the standard protocol. Uh, it's good to look uh, because your, your standard protocol may be attacking a, a different subgroup. Uh, there's nothing out there. And OCD is one of the few things in the DSM that hasn't replicated subsets, you know, subtypes of this and subtypes of that. So as an example, it's, it's one where the DSM has a single category. Uh, the, the brain has three categories and uh, the, the brain trumps the DSM on that one uh, by a long shot. It's Santiago, back to something else, and this mitochondria depletion. Are you aware 
of not to put you on the spot, although I think I am, but are, are you aware of far infrared or near infrared treatments? And there's a device that I'm familiar with specifically. It's, it's the Juve J O O V V that targets, you know, mitochondria depletion and some sports teams over here, the 49ers in particular, uh, use this for all kinds of things. Um, they would might say, you know, recovery from injury and things like that, but, but they're, you know, ultimately getting after mitochondria. Um, so anyway, back to the question, are you aware of any of these, uh, far or near infrared treatments for mitochondria, uh, depletion? Yeah. And, uh, before I answer that, I want to go back to the question of the, uh, of golf for a second. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, now Jay was, Obviously, very eloquently putting the, the explanation for the for the EEG. Uh, now, a lot of the work that I do with golfers is done on putting, and the reason why I do it is because putting is what wins you tournaments. That's what wins you the game. It's, it's your short game. You can be a really long driver and uh, you know have good Irish shots, but it's on the putting green that you really win tournaments. A lot of the work that I do is with respiration and heart rate variability, particularly heart rate deceleration. And uh, what I teach the golfers is to pot in between heartbeats, just like they teach sharpshooter snipers to shoot in between, fire in between heartbeats. I do that with golfers. And, you know, the vagus nerve has different really points to different subcortical areas that end up targeting the thalamocortical loops. So it's, it's a good bottom-up approach to also teaching the brain to get into a specific pattern and just via lots of repetition get that pattern going. Now, what I have to say is that if you're a sports psychologist, if you want to work with athletes, you need to take these measurements onto the field. So you need to you need to get out of the lab and go do it at the driving range or the putting range with your golfer. Because you have to measure in conditions that are closely related to what they do on a day-to-day basis. The lab is one thing, doing it out there with wind, and rain and crowds and sun and you know people are heckling you and your opponents next to you is a different thing. So anytime you work with an athlete, you need to go to the golf course, to the tennis court, to the soccer pitch. You know you need to to take it out there. But I have found that decelerating the heart rate really helps a lot. You know uh, when I first started doing sports psychology, what they taught us was. If you get a certain level of activation, meaning you raise the heart rate, if you increase it, you speed it up, you're going to get better performance. But what I found with the work that I did with the shooters was that they were decelerating their heart rate and they were shooting better when they were doing that. So I then took that to the, to the potting green and I was finding the same thing, you know, that before the execution and as execution is successful as they sink in the pot, there's a deceleration previously of heart rate. And teaching the golfer to identify that precise moment in between heartbeats, when to do it, it's key. Like Jay was saying, everybody's different. So everybody has a different range where they do that. And they also have a different specific moment where they do that. To find that, you need lots of repeated measures. So you need to go out there and just like learning the EEG, you have to look at EEG after EEG after EEG. You have to do hundreds, if not thousands of pots before you start getting it right. It takes time. I see uh, a lot of sports psychologists who are new to neurofeedback, who are recently implementing neurofeedback, make the mistake of using it right before a competition without previous experience. 
and they go and you know have the athlete do heart rate variability and they relax him way too much. They, they throw them to parasympathetic dominance and then the athlete is too relaxed and they perform poorly. Well, obviously the athlete doesn't want to work with the sports psychologist again and they don't want to hear about biofeedback or neurofeedback. When you work with these interventions, you need to work out. To me, it's very important to start in the off season because you need to get them familiarized with the technique. You need to get familiarized with the process. And while athletes tend to learn faster, it takes time for them to learn too. So it's very important to say that. To our advantage, uh, Bryson DeChambeau, who is the number five golfer in the world, has openly spoken about his work with neurofeedback. If you go to YouTube and Google Bryson DeChambeau neurofeedback, there's a press conference where he explains brainwaves and the EEG. So he, he, he's done his homework and the person who's working with him has done a really good job in, in, in explaining to him what it's all about. And he now endorses that. So having the, you know, the number five player, five uh, golfer in the world, Ryder Cup player to, to speak about neurofeedback is really important to us. Now to your question uh, about gadgets uh, for infrared, I don't really know about specifics. I the ones I have, uh, the one that I'm using right now is called Violite. I'm learning more and more on the premise of that. And one of those is just fitting mitochondria. But I know there's, there's many other options out there. And I have had colleagues tell me different names, different brands. I guess one of the most important things in terms of these devices is to, to look at the data supporting them um, or, or the research supporting them. But I, I do know that photobiomodulation and infrared, uh, infrared technologies are, used, are being researched and used more and more for this mitochondrial depletion. Uh, you know, not only for brain training or, or, or brain recovery, even for injury recovery, you know, that's something that physical therapists are also incorporating more and more. But, you know, it, it, since I do a lot more work with um, individual athletes as opposed to sports teams and sports organizations, um, I really don't know what specifically what equipment they're using. I do know it's being researched and, and used more frequently right now. There's a, a brand new device that's just now hitting the market. The Korean group, uh, iSync Brain, uh, created an iSync Wave, which is a, a helmet that's got dry sensor EG uh, 19 electrodes in it. And it expands and contracts uh, to fit the head. And the mechanics in the helmet basically adjust the electrodes proportionate to the size of the head. So it maintains the proper 1020 system placements. Each electrode also has a photobiomodulation, which is programmable. Uh, so there are a lot of people with a lot of investment into the photobiomodulation approach. Um, there's a lot of new devices. Sense AI uh, has photobiomodulation uh, built into their uh, small headset. It's not 19 electrodes, but um, it's also a photobiomodulation added into EEG. There's a lot of devices coming out. Violite's been around for quite a while and has done some small studies. Uh, unfortunately, it's hard to get a major study done because it costs money. And, you know, if you're making a device that's got a really small market niche, there's not really the capital laying around to do a, a million dollar study. Uh, the, the small studies that have been done are promising, but also small. Uh, so it's hard to get, uh, uh, you know, heavy money behind it unless you've done a very good 
pilot study. And so far, most of the studies are pilot study level, not uh, there's no you know, major studies that have been done. Uh, that said, it, uh, there are a lot of people investing in it. There's a lot of new devices coming out uh, with photobiomodulation. It, it, it appears to be quite powerful in its uh, ability to Im- impact brain function. Um, uh, I welcome it to the uh, uh, to the repertoire of things that we have to modulate the brain with. Uh, nice to see companies interested in coupling the EEG along with the photobiomodulation of what they call a closed loop form of uh, uh, treatment, where you do the photobiomodulation, look at how it's impacting the brain and change the photobiomodulation based on how the brain is responding. So there's a lot of advanced approaches with it that are coming out now as more advanced devices uh, emerge. Folks that are maybe new to this idea that they're hearing what Jay and Santiago are saying, and it's photobiomodulation, if they want to check it out more. It, it's a relatively new, maybe not for the Bylight folks, but a relatively new approach. And it, as Jay pointed out, um, it's hard to sometimes get giant studies to say, hey, yeah, this stuff works. Um, but it doesn't mean it doesn't work. You know, we have to start somewhere. I'm excited about being involved in this show because I think it puts us in touch with some of these maybe uh, more obscure ways of getting after problems for people. That's that's a good thing. Exposure is a good thing. It's always good to vet out what's real and not real. Well, Santiago, we want to thank you for coming on the show again. I'm I'm definitely picking up some Delta waves from you. <laughs> yeah right about this time yeah <laughs> what's the best way for uh, people to check out uh, your info santiago what's what's your website well they can visit us at uh, lab.com and they can see all the information we have all the info on our services uh, neurofeedback biofeedback stimulation technologies and all the work we do with with brain training We'll have all your links in the podcast notes and uh, double check my work, Santiago, because as usual with you guys, I got pages and pages of notes. One thing I want to say is don't blame me for your damn success. (laughs) (laughs) Can't help it. Can't help it. Sorry. (laughs) We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast. Again, we like to thank our Patreon supporters like Ars Coso. It's the only 100% natural supplement on the market that gives balanced nutrition, combining probiotics and prebiotics, which is proven to improve gut health. Right, Dr. Skip? Absolutely. The contact info for everyone is located in the podcast notes below. Do you have an idea for a topic? Please email Pete at neuronoodle.com. We'll leave us a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. If they can't hear us, we can help them. Hey, if you really like us, buy us a coffee on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. Cue the music.